who's going to get on a plane if the pilot's like, I've been up all night? Yeah, <laughs> cheers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, geriatric physical therapist, weight loss coach, and passionate disease prevention expert. I used to struggle with emotional eating, sugar cravings, and consistency. Then I learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all with a low insulin lifestyle. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reshape Your Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Nolte. Today we have a really exciting special guest, Dr. John White, and he is a medical doctor and he also has his master's in public health. He is the chief medical officer for a big website you might have heard of before, WebMD, and he's authored multiple books on taking control of your risk. So the Take Control series, Taking Control of Your Cancer Risk, and then his new book, Take Control of Your Diabetes Risk. So today we are just really honored to have you here, Dr. White. I'm excited to dive into this. Um, I love having medical doctors on the podcast So let's get started just with a little bit of your story, how you got into medicine and what your role as a doctor looks like today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real honor to to be with you. I've been following you and, and, and watching many of your episodes. I've always been interested in, in medicine. No one in my family is in medicine, but even from a young age, I always was interested in in science. I I like working with people. That's probably why I chose to go into internal medicine in in terms of treating adults and following them over time. But early on, I also realized in medical school that I was interested in broader policy issues. How do we pay for certain services? What's the role of prevention? Kind of population health and public health before we called it population health and and really try to balance that health policy role with clinical practice. And and I still see patients now, not every day, um, on average about once a week, sometimes a, a little more than that. But it's interesting because sometimes people will view me as like a media person Mm because I work at WebMD, I I worked at Discovery Channel, but I view myself as this health policy person that I'm using the media outlets to help translate information that can hopefully impact clinical practice. So how do we translate that research into ways that the general public can understand and the clinical community can understand. And hopefully we all lead, live better and and longer lives that that's the real goal. Yeah. And before we hopped on here, we kind of talked about this clinical inertia and I asked you, I said, do you know how long it takes for new medical evidence to make its way into clinical practice? And we know that there's a lag. Can you speak on that lag and what do you find is most helpful for influencing physicians to kind of update their practice according to the latest evidence? There certainly has been a lot of innovation in medicine, both in terms of therapeutics, uh, as well as diagnostics. The challenge is anyone in the medical community, physical therapists, pharmacists, doctors, we all tend to be very conservative in our thinking, meaning we like to stick with what we know works. So when something new comes out, what we often see is that costs go up 
because you actually still do what you were doing, right? So maybe it's an imaging test. And then you order this new thing that you're still not quite sure how to interpret. So although we'd like to think, you know, it's adopted pretty quickly, the reality is it's often years before new technologies, new innovations are fully adopted. Some of it is payment mechanisms. If it's not paid for adequately, people aren't going to do it. Some of it is knowledge. It's hard to keep up in terms of all these new advances, as well as just your own comfort level that you're willing to try these different things. So patients also need to be their own advocates too. And I always appreciate when people come in and they talk about what's on their mind or they talk about what they heard. I'd rather have that discussion rather than they just try it on their own or go to a different provider. So it's really creating that mutually respectful relationship with a health professional to, to try new innovations. And I'm sure even you know, in any field in medicine, it's different technologies, different digital tools they have questions about and, and want to try out. You probably see that as well. And, and we have to think, how do we know they're good? When's the right time to put it into practice? You know, how much time should we wait to see how others are doing? Yeah. And from a media standpoint, it's like when Clubhouse came out, you know, it's like, do I really want to get on another media platform? Or when TikTok came out, it's like, we kind of have to wait and see for a little bit yeah. before we figure out. That's how really I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not an early adopter. I, I like know. Wait and see. Like, let, uh, you're let not the on dust TikTok. settle. <laughs> I'm not. It's good. And I'm, I didn't join Clubhouse either. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to wait and see a little. See, that's the thing. I stuck with what I know. I, yeah. I know Twitter. I'm still figuring out Instagram. I am too. Uh, I don't, I don't even do Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just getting into TikTok, but I never got into clubhouse. So that's funny. So let me ask you this. How has your practice changed? You know, you're, you've written two books now and you've been a doctor for, you know, decades. And so how do you feel like your practice has changed? Maybe like the top two to three things that you different do differently now than you did when you were a new physician. I've been much more interested in preventive medicine. And, and talking about non-prescription um, approaches. Mm -hmm. So even in diabetes or prediabetes, there's a role for medications for many people, but others may not need them. And I want to spend more time talking about what you can do as you reference the book to take control of your own risk. So I have a much more substantive discussion about ways to eat healthy, ways to become physically active, what you need to do. What I've learned over the years, patients will say, tell me what to do. Give me some examples. And all too often in the past, we'd say, you need to lose weight. Okay. Eat healthy. Come back in, you know, two, three months and let's see what you do. Remember we would talk about, you know, high lipids. And then we'd say, okay, you have to adopt a healthy lifestyle. Let's give it three months and then we'll check and see. And then we kind of changed it in medicine to say, well, you could start it right away instead of a lifestyle intervention, oh. because we never gave people good advice mm -hmm. because we didn't learn that. So that's one of the biggest things I focus much more on kind of total wellness and where, um, lifestyle changes take a role. And then the others, and I'd say, this is particularly in the last two years with the COVID pandemic. I've become much more sensitive and, and I should have been, to be honest before, as to the role of mental health and physical health. And I 
really do much more screening for depression and anxiety. And I talk about that there really is no physical health without mental health. If, mm-hmm. if you think about it for years, for centuries, we've known the connections between the mind and the body. But then when it comes to ourselves and our own behaviors and our own health issues, we, we don't make that connection. We don't connect the lack of sleep with some of our health problems. We don't connect the depression that many people are experiencing with the aches and pains and fatigue. And they think of just, well, I need another pill. I need you know, a new imaging test. And a lot of times it's taking the time to address some of the mental health challenges that people are facing, particularly now. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do for ongoing support? Because we know that one visit with a doctor is wonderful. And a doctor who's as compassionate as on and honest with their patients as you are is great. What do you do if someone is at risk for prediabetes? What do you do if they're, if they are experiencing anxiety or depression from a follow-up standpoint? Right. Yeah. I'm actually seeing patients in follow-up much more often than I used to before too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That, like that's, that's a key point. I'm also talking to patients more and more, and, and this goes to the first two things that I've changed is health really happens when you leave the doctor's office. So it doesn't matter so much as to what your blood pressure is when you come in to see me at that particular day. It really matters what's happening throughout the week. It doesn't matter what you had for breakfast before you see me. And I often ask patients that just to get a sense of of what they're eating, but it really is issues of food insecurity and, and other aspects of social determinants of health. But what I also think is the recognition, and I think internists are good for this, that they're really the quarterback of care, right? So I can't manage everything and I'm not good at everything. So I often utilize diabetes educators. Mm -hmm. I often use mental health professionals, both psychologists and psychiatrists. I'm big on recommending physical therapy and occupational therapy to patients. It's often covered and Sometimes patients are like, oh, I don't, I don't want to go. That's another, you know, drive I have to make or, or public transportation. But I talk to them about the role of physical therapy, about the role of physical medicine rehab, about the role of occupational therapy. I have a patient with a, a lot of hand discomfort and, and her x-ray just shows some degenerative disease. And I'm like, if you really want to get better because you're still working and we have to be realistic, people just can't quit their jobs. Right. There, there's some, you know, financial responsibilities that people have or change their jobs. Sometimes we have to talk about how do you um, work out the mechanics of your body with the responsibilities of your job. And it's not intuitive for, for people they, they have to figure it out. And sometimes I say, just try a couple sessions mm-hmm. yeah. and, and then see how it goes. And a lot of times they keep at it. So I mean, that's the bigger change too, that I recognize it's not just me and, and patients are recognizing that too. It's really a group of folks that have to help manage your care. Yeah. So you allude in your book to these different lifestyle kind of pillars or factors, you know, we know about nutrition and stress and sleep and movement. Is there any other major pillar that you focus on? Like, do you touch on the toxins or the environment regarding our risk for diabetes or cancer? 
or did you want to kind of focus on those four main pillars? Yeah. You know, I acknowledge the role of toxins and environment, and I put it up front in terms Mm -hmm. of environment certainly plays a role in cancer. It certainly plays a role in in diabetes in in terms of if you don't even have... you know, fresh grocery stores in your area or safe places to, to be active. And, but there's also, you know, what's in our water supply and rivers and things like that. But I recognize that's not my expertise mm-hmm. as, as is some others. So I do tend to focus on the role of food and food really is medicine. I focus on the role of physical activity and, and how you can make that fun and, and exercise smarter, not necessarily longer, but I also do spend a lot of time as, as you alluded to about the role of stress and sleep. People don't think about that I know. in terms of their underlying health issues. And that's why I want it to focus on it. It just can't be exercise and diet. I mean, we don't do a good enough job on that. First of all, with <laughs> the health community, but it's a recognition of these other elements that play a key role for which there's lots of good science and data that talk about the impact of chronic stress, of chronic sleep deprivation. And I brought this up to a patient earlier this week. He was having a lot of fatigue and joint pain and brain fog, but really because of some jobs and some other um, relationship issues is having a, a lot of insomnia. And this has been going on for a while. And I said to her, think about it when you had infants, right? and they weren't sleeping and you're getting up at 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. How do you feel? You feel lousy. No one feels good. You're not quite on par next day. Well, if that's been going on for years with insomnia, what do you think that's doing to your body? Like we're just not making that connection. It's not your thyroid. It's not, it's not, it's not rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, we already worked those up anyway. So I do know that's not the case. Sometimes those are, but it's the role of chronic lack of quality sleep. That's Mm -hmm. impacting physically manifestations of that in terms of fatigue and joint pain and brain fog and other issues. I want to talk about that just really quick, but I think that we're such a culture of doers and achievers. I know like on the strengths, you know, achiever is my number one strength. And so when I'm thinking about achieving a goal, I'm thinking about what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And I think when people are thinking about getting healthy or losing weight, tell me what to eat, tell me how to exercise. And they don't necessarily want to hear, maybe get a different job, you know, maybe consider how your emotions are affecting your health maybe you need to prioritize sleep. And it's almost like we need to take a step back and do less to get more health. And that's just such a different paradigm than what what I think people are used to. Can you explain like some of the physiology behind Mm -hmm. sleep? You mentioned uh, joint pain, you mentioned fatigue, obviously brain Mm -hmm. fog. So can you, can you kind of explain what goes on with our hormones and our bodies when we're sleeping that really rejuvenates and restores us to better health. We really kind of dismiss sleep as like, Hey, it's not that important in a way. It's funny. It's because people think, well, we do it every day. It's not that important. How do I, you know, modify it? Whereas I would argue, Hey, you do it every day. It's critically important (laughs) that you do it right. Then we, we don't think about it that way, but sleep isn't your body turning the brain off, like you're doing with your computer. There's a lot of processes that are going and taking place when you sleep. 
particularly the lymphatic system, which is removing toxins from your body, really kind of, it's kind of that virus, you know, antivirus system in, in your computer. And if you don't do it on your computer, you have problems. If you don't get adequate sleep in order to do that antivirus, you're going to have problems. But the other aspect, it's all about hormones. And we don't think about it that way. The, the primary ones are cortisol and melatonin. There's also orexin, a few others. And we have this diurnal variation in our biologic clock, which means, you know, in the morning, certain hormones like cortisol go up. So we wake up and we become more alert. And at nighttime that goes down and melatonin rises and melatonin really is a signal to your brain. Hey, it's time to get ready to sleep. Let's, you know, power things down, so to speak, if we're thinking about the computer. So when you're not sleeping well, you're messing up that circadian rhythm. And we've seen in terms of shift workers that there's an increased incidence of hormonally related cancers, breast cancer, prostate cancer. That's not surprising when you think about the physiology of what's happening with the hormones. Cortisol levels increase blood sugar. It, cortisol really is about inflammation. So if your cortisol levels are messed up with lack of sleep and your cortisol levels are consistently high, it's not a surprise that then your blood sugar levels are high. And when your blood sugar levels are consistently high, then you're going to develop diabetes and develop those problems of diabetes. So it's really this effort to help educate the public that sleep has a significant impact on your health and that we have not prioritized it at all. We all think we're going to catch up on the weekends. That doesn't happen. Or we think we'll do it later in life. You know, we got plenty of time. I've heard so many people say, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I've and said I want to yeah. say like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's all the over. It's a, it's a badge of honor, right? I yeah. got by with four hours of sleep. Nobody yeah. wants four hours of sleep. No one does well on that mm -hmm. long-term. I would not want a surgeon who's only had four <laughs> hours of sleep operating on me the next day. Would you? So let's be realistic. Well, that's a whole nother topic. Terms of that's right. My brother's <laughs> right. actually in his um, fellowship at Vanderbilt uh, for plastic oh, surgery. Great. So I know oh, wow. he's just worked so hard and like, you just see the, they just work, 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 yeah. work, work those residents. And it's a big deal. I mean, resident, and, but we've learned that's a challenge. Yes. It's, a, it's a big challenge and that, that yeah. physician burnout. So you're yeah. side it's note the there. Thing, yeah. It's the same thing for pilots. We have rules and truckers and we've seen the problems that arise when they don't have lack of sleep. Who's going to get on a plane if the pilot's like, I've been up all night. <laughs> Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so we, we know it for other people, but we don't think about it for ourselves. And, you know, I'm going to be realistic too. Everyone can't just, as we talked about, change their job. Everyone can't, you know, give up their job. So we have to work with people to, to think how can they change their job or how do we change the systems that are in place that are not allowing them to, to thrive and, and to put an emphasis on good health. And, you know, I like when people are talking about, and they need a mental health day, they just need a day to yep. regroup. But I also want to remind people, you just can't do it for a day. You have to think through the process. And, and we often need people to work with them to say, how do I rethink this to make health a priority? Yeah. 
Now, let me ask you this. What are some of your big things that personally you have done? You've changed in your own lifestyle to optimize your sleep and then dovetailing on that. What are your major recommendations for your patients to optimize their sleep? So I do not do email late at night anymore. Like I used to mm-hmm. remember when we had blackberries, I was on the, oh, yeah. I was on the blackberry, the, yeah. the crackberries and on iPhones. Now I really put a limit like after seven, seven thirty. 30, I don't do emails and, and because what's happening. The emails usually agitate you yeah. a little, and, and you feel like you have to respond to things. And that creates a cascade of other responses. I really minimize the amount of social media time mm-hmm. that I spend online too. And I know a lot of people are just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Those are all activating y- your brain to develop a response. So I really just kind of, you know, quiet down. I, I do have young children. So that helps. I'm trying to quiet them down. So by essence, I'm quieting myself down uh-huh. and actually I'm getting better sleep. Uh, and I'm very consistent in my time of when I go to bed, which mm-hmm. I didn't used to be. It kind of was very random based on television shows and others, but th- that's the biggest change that I've made in, in terms of, of sleep. And I also uh, have struggled in a bad way. I had been eating, snacking at mm-hmm. night during mm-hmm. the pandemic. I don't know why I really didn't do that part of the pandemic. Maybe because now I'm not doing emails. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> you need something uh, else to do with yeah, your hands. Yeah. yeah. So that's something that I've been working on. I keep saying, okay, I'm not going to eat after eight. I'm not going to eat after 730. You know, yep. I'm not going to eat after seven. I haven't gotten beyond that. Uh, but but those are things that, you know, I, I set these goals and then, you know, I measure them. And I know that those are good things for my health. So do I really need to eat popcorn at 8.30? No, you know, every now and then, sure, that, that's the thing, but not, not multiple times a week. But the biggest thing on sleep is really, um, really quieting things down, you know, several hours before sleep and then being consistent in the time that I'm going to sleep. And now, and now my watch tells me, I noticed the other day, they're like, it's time to sleep, time to get ready for sleep. I'm like, <laughs> Did how you do they tell know your th- watch to tell you how, that? How do they how do they know these things? <laughs> kind of creepy for your watch. A little to bit. Know that. A little bit. A little bit. It's a fit and bit. How old are your kids? My kids are young, nine and seven. Okay. I have a almost four-year-old and an uh, almost two-year-old. And so the running joke in our family is you want a third. And you know, whenever they're yeah. kind of chaotic, my husband my husband and I will look at each other. I'm like, two's good. You know, yeah. two's good, right? Yeah. <laughs> But you're right. I mean, that sleep deprivation of a new parent is Absolutely. something else for your brain. The mom brain, the dad brain is a real thing. Um, what do you tell your patients to do? So besides those things, are there any other, you know, not eating um, a few hours before bed, really trying to reduce that cognitive stimulation on social media and any mm-hmm. open loop communications because your brain hates open loops. So not That's opening right. a loop for email that you can't shut. Um, what are some other tips? I mean, do you do any like blue light blockers? Do you do, you know, try not to exercise right before bed, um, morning sunlight, melatonin, those kinds of things. I'm curious on your opinion. So I'm trying to exercise more, (laughs) (laughs) but no, I, I don't exercise before bedtime. And I have told people that in general, I want them to get it in, but it, it just makes sense that not to do it before, uh, bedtime. I'm a big proponent. And I've learned this from my father-in-law 
uh, darkening shades. So I do talk to people about keeping your room dark. I tell people it's like a spa for, in the sense that it should be dark. It should be quiet. The difference is it should be cool. So my wife actually likes it cooler. I like it a little warmer, but most data shows around 68 degrees is Mm -hmm. what our body likes for sleep. Cooler is actually better. Um, because I'm really not looking at things later at night screens. I am not, you know, I don't use the blue light blockers, but for some people they could, as for melatonin, there's some value for it for patients. What I talk to them about is I don't want anything ever to be a crutch. Yeah. Something that they're dependent upon, even though that's a supplement, which technically is regulated as a food. It's really is, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is the best approach for insomnia, but that takes a lot of work and some challenges, but it actually has shown the best data in addressing it. But I also find that sleep, poor sleep is often a harbinger, a signal that something else is going on right? There's something else physically or mentally that's causing this lack of sleep. And I always tell people to come in and talk about if they're having sleep problems, because usually that means something else is going on. So, you know, typically I run a battery of tests, but then I also do that mental health assessment as well to find out what's going on. There's a lot of anxiety right now that people are having. And I've been seeing that when they're coming in with a lot more signs and symptoms of abdominal discomfort, GI discomfort, skin rashes. I've seen a lot more shingles than I've seen in recent years. So it's really addressing uh, the issues relating to anxiety as well. Let's dovetail into that. Just from my personal experience, the latest thing that the two latest things that I've done to improve sleep are blue light blockers. I've had a couple of great cardiologists on the show and they really advocated that. And so my husband and I love cuddling on the couch to unwind and watch a show and so now both of us wear our blue light block oh, great. really cool together. Mm-hmm. And, um, I really had to re- drastically reduce the coffee that I was drinking huge coffee fan, but I was waking up at 4am, you yeah. know, bright sunshiny, ready to go. And I thought, you know what? My cortisol is spiking too soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I was kind of jittery throughout the day. And as much as I love my coffee, I said, I love my sleep more. Mm-hmm. And so I think it really is when you're faced with making a hard lifestyle, choice or change. It's like, you're kind of weigh the pros and cons. And I think sleep always trumps pretty much anything else. So a lot of people like to get up early and exercise. And I'm like, so you're going to get up early and kind of stress yourself out because you're losing sleep to exercise. Maybe the sleep is a bigger priority, at least right now. So as a new mom, you know, I'm not going to be. Yeah. (laughs) And it's often things we think we like and need. So like you, I actually was drinking coffee like after dinner. Maybe I was thinking I was European or something, (laughs) but learned the same thing. It was getting harder to sleep. And at first, you know, the first I was like, why is it, (laughs) why is it hard to sleep nowadays? And then I stopped drinking coffee at dinner and, you know, at first I kind of missed it, but you know, a couple of years later, I don't miss it at all. And sometimes we think that being happy and healthy are, are not synonymous. Like you, you can't do both. You have to give up too much, but yeah, that's a acquired point. tastes and habits. And, you know, I don't miss it at all. I thought I needed it. And, you know, and every now and then I, I might have it or I'll, I'll switch to decaf mm-hmm. on that, but, but I, I don't need, I still have it in the morning. I have one here with me during our conversation, yeah. but, but I've learned like, you know, after 
you know, 12 or 1 p.m. I'm not, I'm not going to have any coffee and I'm okay with that. Okay. I want to ask you another question too. You said a lot of times poor sleep is an indicator of something else going on. What are some of the top things going on that you see with poor sleep uh, being a manifestation of those underlying health issues? Sometimes it's undiagnosed thyroid disease. Mm -hmm. So it can be either way, typically hyperthyroid. So they're more jittery. They're not able to, to reset. Sometimes it's undiagnosed heart disease or very poorly controlled heart disease. And, and for whatever reason, they're not able to, to get that restful sleep. I mean, those are some of the, the two big issues. Sometimes it's poorly controlled diabetes, which makes sense too, because that's impacting your insulin, your cortisol, your other elements. Um, the other big issues, as we talked about, are, are mental health and anxiety and depression, which is hard to, to quiet your mind. But, but those are some of the things I always talk about to patients. It's the same thing with unintentional weight loss is always something that has to be worked up aggressively because there's a concern for cancer with unintentional weight loss. But it's the same thing with poor sleep. You still have to do some basic work to rule out some potentially life-threatening or, or significant diseases that might manifest as that. And that could be thyroid, heart disease, you know, diabetes, sometimes some endocrine issues with cortisol, they're more rare, but those should be worked up. Yeah. And I think one point just to make, cause I work with clients who are working to reduce medications. And so I really say, talk with your primary care physician, because if you're taking blood sugar medication, if you're taking blood pressure medication, if you're taking thyroid medication, mm -hmm and you lose weight or you improve your insulin sensitivity, you could very well be over-medicated. And so Absolutely. I think that's important to kind of rec recognize some signs of that. And one that came up recently, I'd kind of like your opinion on, she was on a thyroid stimulating medication. So a little bit of hypothyroid to start mm -hmm. and was taking a thyroid medication and was adopting kind of a lower carbohydrate intermittent mm -hmm. fasting lifestyle and noticed some more anxiety, noticed some difficulty sleeping. And so I did some research into it and I found that, you know, as your insulin sensitivity improves, other hormone sensitivity can improve as well. And so my hypothesis was maybe she's becoming more sensitive to that mm -hmm. thyroid medication and the resulting effect is almost being over-medicated unintentionally. Does that make sense to you as a medical doctor? Absolutely. And it also then relates to how our drugs are metabolized, either by the liver or by the kidney. I love the fact that you talk about de-escalating yeah. drugs. We don't, we don't do that enough in medicine. And we need to be talking about that more, especially our elderly patients who many of them are over-medicated. Once you get started on a drug, it's almost impossible to take a patient off of it because no one wants to talk about it or we don't explain why, but you're right. As there's change in weight, change in nutrition, change in activity, that can change the amount of medication that people need. The other thing that I've seen over the years as it goes back to sleep is patients have to get up at night to urinate. And yeah. then you realize they're taking a diuretic medicine at nighttime mm -hmm. and a lot of blood pressure medicines or combo medicines that have a diuretic, people don't even realize it does. And you, you think, well, this is why you're getting up at night. It's not your prostate. It's not, you know, your bladder. It's, we need to switch the timing of this medication 
or switch the medication. But it, it's a great point that we all need to be talking to clinicians and pharmacists about the amount of medication one is on in, in, in terms of your work too, in terms of how it impacts mobility, how it impacts frailty. Uh, th that's one of the most overlooked aspects of the doctor visit. It, it's too much focus at times of prescribing medicines rather than de-prescribing medication. Yeah. I think that's an excellent point. I, I say this story multiple times, but I've had people in home care with over 30 medications and, you know, and it's just unreal. And it's almost someone's job to help manage yeah. those medications and be sure they're administered properly. And you kind of write about how, you know, we we've falsely assumed that cancer and diabetes that there's such a strong genetic component that they're inevitable. And I think it's really important that we educate people. It's not, <laughs> did you say like, um, about 30% of cancers are maybe genetic, but that leaves up to 70%. That's not, that's exactly right. Okay. So about 30% are due to inherited mutations that cause cancer, but that's the minority. That's not the majority. Mm -hmm. Most cancers are caused by a combination of different lifestyle issues. There's the element of environment, obviously still smoking. And sure, there's nothing that is a hundred percent in terms of preventing disease, but it's still reducing the risk because there are inheritable inherited mutations. There's a genetic component to diabetes. It's particularly small with type two diabetes. But what I hear from people in type two diabetes, I hear it both ways. Some people are concerned and want to get checked because they'll be like, my mom has diabetes or my grandfather had diabetes. Sometimes they'll say a touch of sugar, like, like it's yeah. not so bad, <laughs> just a little <laughs> touch. And I'm like, mm, diabetes is number one cause of blindness, leading cause of, you know, renal kidney failure, uh, you know, neurology problems with pain in, in terms of neuropathy. So it's, it's serious, but then I hear it the other side too. Oh, it doesn't run in my family doc. Like I'm not worried about it. Oh, good. And point. yeah, what I tell people, the family history in diabetes is usually due to shared behaviors, mm -hmm. meaning you eat the same type of food. You have the same style of eating. You have the same focus on physical activity, parents who exercise, uh, and are physically active often have children who are physically active. It's also about, you know, even just in terms of how much you put on a plate, you know, in terms of how you were growing up. So it's, it's usually more, uh, the shared behaviors than it is a true genetic aspect. And I still see people don't always make the connection with it's the accumulation of different activities. So people will say to me, and I'm paraphrasing them, they'll say, I'll say, if you were able to reduce your weight 10 to 15 pounds, probably 7% for some people or 20, you could probably come off your medicines for type 2 diabetes or at least reduce them. And about once every four months or so, I, I still have someone who'll say to me, and they say usually like this, Dr. White, I've been fat for 20 years. I've only had diabetes for two. I don't think it's related to that. Really? consistently hear that because they're not making that association or they'll say, you know what? My brother is 20 pounds heavier and he doesn't have diabetes. So I really don't think it's diabetes oh or relating to their weight because they don't make that connection because they've been doing things for so long and they never had any problems, but it's been the cumulative 
response. I see it the same in runners, to be honest, where I've, for some reason, I have a lot of patients that run and then they'll come in with knee pain and joint pain. And I'll be like, you know, you're probably going to have to reduce your running. It's related to your running. And I'm not joking. They'll be like, I've only had this knee pain for two weeks. I don't think it's, I don't think it's my running. I'm like, you've been running, you know, Uh, 10 miles a week for 10 years. Yes, (laughs) exactly. So you don't always make the connection. So we can't fault just on, on diabetes, but it's relating to other aspects because you think I've been doing it all along and I've never had any problems. So why all of a sudden, and am I having problems because it's taken 10 years of damage to your cells or damage to your body that that's causing this. There's a guy that I communicate with online. When you get on in the online space, you get some random people Mm -hmm. and his name is Charles Harris. So shout out to you if you're listening. Mm -hmm. And he's very big into the insulin resistance world. Mm. And he created this really lovely graphic of a yellow brick road to insulin resistance. Mm. And it's, um, you know, in your twenties and your thirties, you're probably doing fine. Maybe some rising insulin behind the scenes, forties and fifties, you're starting to get those metabolic risk factors of, you know, altered blood lipids, Mm -hmm. blood pressure, blood glucose, excess fat, and then sixties. 50s, 60s, then you get in those diagnosis of diabetes and, um, you know, the official heart disease and all these things. And that's kind of just in line with your point that, well, I've been doing this, you know, for so long, I love that. Been walking yeah. that yellow brick road of insulin yeah. resistance for a long time. And it takes time to accumulate. Yeah. I love that. Um, I wanted to circle back around to the anxiety. And I just think it's so important to touch on this a little bit more because I feel like when people are anxious and they're depressed, so much of their mental energy is being shunted or like shuffled towards negative things. And it's less energy that they have to make those lifestyle changes. You know, who wants to make healthy choices when they're exhausted, Mm -hmm. wants to go exercise when they're exhausted. And so I do think for some people really honing in on that mental health standpoint and giving them plenty of credit and kudos for focusing there first Um, And recognizing that when you focus on your mental health, you also get credit for your physical health is important. And so for me personally, I really just have had pretty great mental health my whole life. Um, A little bit of, of high school thing. And then um, postpartum for maybe both of my kids a little bit. Um, But from an anxiety standpoint, reducing my caffeine really helped. Um, so from your experience, probably having a broader range of working with people with anxiety, what are some of your standard recommendations for people struggling with that depression and anxiety, maybe not just from a counseling perspective, but from a food, from an exercise, from a sleep perspective, any specific recommendations you give there. And you first have to die diagnose it and recognize it. And so many people don't recognize their depression and anxiety. So I'm a big proponent of screening questionnaires. We use them in the office, but patients or caregivers or friends could do it on their own. One's called the PHQ-9 for depression. There's even a PHQ-2, just of two questions to, to ask and try to rate the level of depression. There's one is, you know, also an anxiety called the GAD seven, just seven questions. And it helps to put into reference where you might fall. And I think that's important. You can answer the questions yourselves. There's no right or wrong answer, but that's the first step in diagnosis. I think a big element is what you just said. How do we change the thought pattern? 
how do we help them focus on other aspects? You're right. Who wants to focus on, on healthy living when you're feeling lousy? Who wants to go to the doctor's office and, and get in the car? So part of it is how do we change that thought process? And there's a role for medication. There's a role for therapy. Everyone doesn't have to have medication or therapy. But I, one thing that I've learned over the past two years, you had asked about this is about a gratitude journal. And you yes. think, oh, that yes. sounds, that sounds about it all the time. Hokey, hokey, pokey, like, come on. And what I say is, and, and I've used it, you write down every day, every day, because you want to develop the pattern of something that you're thankful for. And there's been data that has shown this over a period of a month, two months. It's the same thing for forgiveness that we actually in PET scanning, we're looking at the brain, we're quieting down the amygdala, the limbic system, those areas of the brain associated with anxiety. We've shown that. I talked to a patient the other day about forgiveness and, and anger. And it was funny because uh, she said to me, but what if I'm right? <laughs> like they wronged me that's and I'm right. I'm like, that's, that's okay. But I, I also talk to people, control what you can control. You mm -hmm. can control your emotions. You can't control about them. And there is a benefit. I talk a lot about mindfulness and meditation as many people are doing. But the difference that I remind people is you just can't go in the room and turn off the lights <laughs> and be quiet. That, that's not mindfulness. I said, try some of the free apps. It's yes. like exercise. Yeah. You have to work at it. I had the privilege of, of working with Deepak Chopra on something. And I really didn't know that much about mindfulness. And, and he kind of coached me a little, but it, but it was practice. And, and that's what I've talked about to, to patients. Food certainly plays a role. And, and when you think about it, when even when you eat a very sugary type of food or ice cream or candy, it, it's that hormonal response where your blood sugar spikes and then it comes back down you feel a little lousy and slow and sluggish after that. So there is a role for eating more fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. you know, really focusing on water as your beverage of choice yes. and all the sugary drinks. Let's be honest, the role of substances, particularly alcohol and other drugs, those make matters worse. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. People use them for a period of time, often as a crutch, but long-term it's going to cause significant health issues. I also remind people, you're not going to solve it overnight. It's not going to be in a few days. It's going to take time. And there's a road to recovery. And, and that's what I focus on. And, and also, don't try to do too many changes at once. Yes. Focus on you know one thing, two at the most, and then go from there. Yep. I think that's important. And I know that we haven't touched on nutrition a lot today. I'm okay with that. The people that listen to the podcast are well-versed in, um, you know, the nutritional recommendations for pre-diabetes, but I did want to, um, talk about exercise because I heard you say in an interview that intensity matters. Mm -hmm. So will you kind of touch on your major exercise recommendations, and then we'll probably wrap it up and tell people where they can get yeah. your books. Absolutely. And the American Diabetes Association and the American Heart Association both recommend 150 minutes of exercise a week. And you may think, whoa, 
<laughs> that is a, is a lot. And for many people, it is a lot. And we have to be realistic in, in terms yeah. of where people are starting at. You know, many of us are at zero. So walking around like your house doesn't count. People used to say, well, I walk around the office. I'm like, that doesn't count. I know. Uh, I know. But what we've seen in cancer prevention and diabetes prevention, you have to sweat a little. You have mm-hmm. to increase your heart rate. So a lot of people will say to me, I'm walking 10,000 steps a day. Why haven't I lost any weight? And then when I talk to them, they're going on an hour walk with their neighbors, which is nice, you know, three times a week, but it's a stroll. <laughs> there's, there's no sweating. As you may know, there's a talk test, right? If you can have a leisurely conversation, either at the gym or with your friends walking, that is not going to give you the health benefit. You need to elevate your heart rate. You need to sweat a little. There's good data about high intensity interval training. Mm -hmm. That's not for everyone. But what we've seen is even with four minutes a day, 30 seconds of high intensity, maybe running, you know, in place the fast, fast you can 30 seconds of rest doing it, you know, a circuit of four times, that's four minutes doing that four times a week right? So consistently, that's a 16 minutes of exercise. They've shown in multiple studies that can return blood sugar to normal in many people because they're sweating. They're being consistent. Yes. They're, they're putting their, their body in a, in a state where they're, they're burning calories Mm -hmm. and they're burning fat. Um, I am a big proponent of start where you are. And I've had patients that could do no pushups and I say, okay, do one, you know, but then have a plan. Mm-hmm. To do to get up to 10 or 20. I've had several people be able to then to say I'm doing 50 in the morning and 50 at night. I mean, that's more than I can do. I know. And, and they started at zero, but but they had a plan and they were consistent. That's where many of us lose our steam. We're good for a week or two. Yeah. And then we just stop. So instead of saying, Well, I can't do 150 minutes of exercise, can you do 10? Can you do power walking? I've been talking about that lately. Mm-hmm. That means one foot is always on the ground, but you're going about three miles per hour. It's hard to have a long conversation <laughs> with people and do that 10 minutes, four times a week. And then you have more time and you're probably getting more benefit because you're sweating, you're raising your heart rate, you're being more intense. That's what matters too, in terms of exercising. And, and all too often we think, oh, well, we have to do 150 minutes. I can't do that. So I'm not going to do any. And, right. and you can do a lot in your home. It's that all or nothing, all or nothing mindset. will just kill you every time. Right. I can't do 150. So I can't, can't do any. And I am all for that high intensity interval training. And I think if someone heard run as fast as I can, I can hardly pick my foot up for you. That high intensity might really just be walking across the room. I mean, some of the people that I've worked with in the past. So it really depends on where you're starting as to what does high intensity look like for you? Absolutely. Dr. White, this has been a great conversation. Can you tell people where they can learn more about you and grab your books? Sure. As you mentioned, I'm the chief medical officer at WebMD. So you can find me at at WebMD. We also have a page called webmd.com slash take control. So that's where all 
that the books are. You can find the books obviously anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your, your local bookstore. Um, and you can email me through WebMD. I look at my own emails. <laughs> so happy not to answer. <laughs> not after seven. Yeah. Uh, I'm on social at Dr. John White. Um, and you can also find me at, at WebMD on those handles as well. But it's really been a pleasure talking to yes. you. I, I appreciate <laughs> your approach towards health and wellness and, and how we can all take control of our own risks. Absolutely. This has been a delight. Thank you so much. And I'll link up all those resources in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thanks for listening to the reshape your health podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and don't forget to tell a friend to learn more and connect online. Check out the links in the show notes.